0: Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church.
1: And our second reading is from the book of Colossians. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, or they may lose heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters. Since you know that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly for you know that you also have a master in heaven.
0: Morning, everyone. My name Angus, so I've not met you or had a chance to really talk to you too much so far. Uh, lovely to have you here. Um, as Laura said, we're in a teaching series on Colossians, and we come to this passage that we just read. And so you might like to keep that open in your Bible while you get your Bible out or your device. Um, kids, I think that's just Sophia and Jasper, are going to head out with Neve and Ethan. And they're going to do a little teaching time for them. School holidays means our program is just not what it normally is, but it'll resume in a couple of weeks' time. And um, obviously, long weekend and holidays means that uh, we've got some families traveling too. And you are here, and so well done. Uh, it's great to be with you. If you're here today, you probably ought to be part of a special club. You've made it through the start of Daylight Savings Time and the school holidays and long weekend. And you're here for a teaching text about wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. That's like a special kind of club, isn't it? It takes a certain kind of person. But you're here, and seriously, though, if this is your first time at St. Oswald's or second time, or you've just missed a couple of weeks in the series, it actually really helps to know the context of what's going on, because otherwise it just seems like the Apostle Paul is just listing off some behaviours that feel like they're kind of out of place in our modern world, some traditional values and patterns for relationships, But Colossians is all about lifting up the uniqueness and the supremacy of Jesus so that these believers who are in Colossae might not be lured into the trap of diminishing what they received when they became followers of Jesus. And so if the first half of Colossians, a four-chapter letter, is primarily about pointing to the goodness and the glory of Jesus... The second half of Colossians primarily takes that attention and focuses it on the difference that Jesus makes in your life. We saw last week that we have been raised with Christ, seated with Him in the heavenly places. That's not theoretical, that's reality. And because we're in Him and He's in us, we're to let that new life shake its way down into our behavior like yeast in a lump of dough that has to work its way into it until all of the dough has been shaped and transformed by it. In chapter 3, verse 17, where we ended last week, says, Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything. You see that? He says it three times, in effect, in different ways. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, when the king takes up residence in your life, when he decides to make you a royal palace fit for his presence, that's going to change you. And Colossians chapter 3 tells us that the primary way that I'm going to display the glory and goodness of Jesus Christ is in how I treat other people. That's why in verse 12 and following, which we looked at last Sunday, Paul speaks about relational qualities, about how I treat others. And in verse 18, where we pick up today, Paul continues the relational theme with three of the most basic and common relationships in the ancient world wives and husbands children and fathers slaves and masters and maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering if this passage has anything to say to you because you're not married or you're not a parent and praise the lord we don't have slavery in our context today but i want to encourage you to be open to god having more to say to you from this text than you imagine I happen to think that God has a word for all of us. Because behind the specifics of the particular relationships that Paul addresses, what he wants us to see is that Jesus is the Lord. He wants us to see that Jesus is a good Lord, that he's the best Lord, that he's a powerful Lord, that he isn't an oppressive Lord. And he wants us to see that, if, that Jesus either has to be Lord of all, or he isn't Lord at all. And the reason that we're to act as Paul encourages in these different relational settings is because we serve Jesus as Lord. You see that in the passage? If you want to just have it open there, you can follow with me. Verse 18, wives, be subject to your husbands. Now, underline this, or don't do it if it's a pew Bible, but underline this, as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything. Underline this, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly, underline this, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, you're starting to see the pattern now. Here it is again, fearing the Lord. Verse 24, from the Lord. Again, verse 24, you serve the Lord Christ. And finally, chapter 4, verse 1, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, and underline this, for you know that you also serve a master in heaven. You may think that you're doing things for another person and to another person, but behind that you are doing it for and to him. See, this passage is a passage about the authority of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, and how that lordship gets even into our most private moments like life in the home. And that's important, isn't it? Because the most challenging place to live out the Christian life is amongst those who know us best. Think about that for a moment. If you're a part of this church, you know me to a certain extent. Some of you know me better than others, but you don't know me like my children know me, and even they don't know me like Ali knows me, that's just the reality. And sometimes we feel like we should be able to put our feet up in the home with our spouse or our children or with our housemates, that we should be able to lay our guard down, but Jesus must be Lord in our homes too. C.S. Lewis, reflecting on this passage, said it this way. He said, if a man can't be comfortable, and you've got to excuse the gender-specific language, it's from a former day, if a man can't be comfortable and unguarded, can't take his ease and be himself in his own house, where can he? And then he says, that is, I confess, the trouble. The answer is an alarming one. There is nowhere this side of heaven where one can safely lay the reins on the horse's neck. There's nowhere this side of heaven where one can safely just lay the reins down and assume, I don't have to put any attention into serving Jesus as Lord here. This will just go fine if I just leave this by itself. No, even in our homes, even in our most private spaces These are places where we are called to serve the Lord. And so here we go. Three contexts that have to do with life in the home, in the ancient world. uh, Slavery uh, and masters and slaves, I'll tell you about that in a moment. But it also fits into that pattern. Wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. We'll just work through them one by one. Verse 18, ready? Wives... Be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. This command is kind of a hard one to hear, right? It might make you bristle as you hear it. And maybe for you it's even more than that. It raises your alarm bells or worse, it's triggering. And there might be very good reasons for that. And so we need to slow down, and before we try and unpack it for our context, we just need to understand what these words meant in their first century world. So the ancient world was familiar with what scholars call household codes, that give instructions about how households were to be best managed. You get them in Greek literature, you get them in Roman, Latin literature, and what's so interesting is that when you compare these Greco-Roman household codes to the New Testament ones, some things are affirmed and some things are overturned. In particular, Greco-Roman household codes rarely addressed women, children, and slaves. They simply addressed men, and that's because the man was the head of the family, the pater familias in Latin... And he had power over his wife, his children, and his slaves. So when Paul addresses husbands, fathers, and masters in these three successive relationships, it's possible that for some of these men, they fill all three of those roles. But Paul doesn't just speak to the men. He also addresses what you might call the weaker party in those relationships, the one with less authority or power. He views them as dignified members of the household, enough that the Word of God might have something to say to them, and not just to the men. And that's not surprising. In the case of wives, for instance, Paul was following the example of Jesus, who not only had women as close friends, but often told parables that spoke directly to women. Contrary to the rabbis of his day, like the parable of the woman and the lost coin. And he didn't just tell parables that spoke predominantly to men like the man with his lost sheep. And to these wives in the church in Colossae, Paul says, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That instruction, be subject... Comes from a compound word in Greek that means to order under. And the idea is of a wife willingly taking the initiative to come under her husband in order to lift up his good and well being. It's a willing initiative. This kind of self subjection can't be forced. The husband doesn't do it, he doesn't subject her to anything. The wife must do it herself." And notice that Paul qualifies it by saying, as is fitting in the Lord, which means two things. Number one, it's not only for the husband, it's not even because of some inherent authority in the husband, it's because Jesus is the authority that you submit in marriage because it honors Him to live this way. But then secondly, and related, There are limits to when this is good and right. There may be moments when a husband's behavior or his choices and actions cannot be submitted to. Because to do so would be to dishonor the Lord. Paul says as much in verse 19, Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. For us, the controversial part of these instructions is what's said to wives, but for Paul's first listeners, the opposite would be true. The command to wives was uncontroversial in that day. They knew no other option, but the command for husbands to love their wives and not to view them as property was revolutionary. That word love refers to the self-sacrificial love that seeks the good of the other, and for Christians, that concept of love can't but help taking on the nuance of the self-sacrificial love of the Son of God who gave himself up for our salvation. That's the kind of love that husbands are to show their wives. In other words, husbands are to self-sacrificially serve their wives, seeking to use their power not to subjugate their wives or to advance their own interests and ends, but to lift up their partners and to put their needs first. That kind of love is incompatible with treating your wife harshly, which rules out any kind of abusive behavior, whether physical or verbal or emotional or spiritual or sexual There's absolutely no place for that in any marriage, but it's especially true for those who serve the Lord Jesus. Wives are not called to put up with abuse. To allow a husband to persist in sinful, destructive behavior is neither to serve him nor to honor Christ. And so please, never think that being faithful to Jesus means quietly struggling in an abusive marriage. In its design and when it's functioning well, a wife's self-submission and a husband's self-sacrificial love won't push either partner down, like one of you is just trying to climb on top of the other person all the time. But instead, each person is going to use what they have to come under the other person in order to lift them up. And that's a two-way street. It's a picture of beautiful mutuality. And in a world of prenups to protect personal interests, and where divorces often happen for nothing more than she or he wasn't fulfilling me anymore, this picture of marriage is both Profound and profoundly strong and other person-centered. Christians take initiative in sacrifice. It's not even a passive thing. It's an active decision to sacrifice for the good of the other, not waiting until the other person deserves it, nor even in forgiveness uh, and even, sorry, in forgiveness moving towards the other when they really don't deserve it. A wife invited to submit to her husband's self-sacrificial love. A husband invited to serve Christ and his wife by lifting her needs above his own. That's the picture. Kathy Keller writes, both women and men get to play a Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority Jesus in his sacrificial submission. Do you see how this could be beautiful? As countercultural as it can feel in our day? And some of you are thinking, all right, well, that's fine, but what does this look like in practice? What does self-sacrificial love, being subject to, what does it look like day to day? And here's the thing, Paul doesn't spell this out. He doesn't give you... A definition of what that should look like. And specifically, he doesn't give a definition of what roles husbands and wives should have. You might have views, personal views, on how this dynamic should play out in decision making or in who should handle family finances or who should be the primary breadwinner or whatever. But if these aren't commanded in Scripture, then you mustn't make it out like they are. And another couple could settle these questions differently, even the opposite way to you, and still be fully honoring God and each other in their marriage. And that's because submitting and self-sacrificially loving are postures. First and foremost, the Greek word has that nuance in it. They'll lead to actions, yes, but it's a way of orienting myself towards my spouse. Not primarily a set of tasks or a cultural role that I'm supposed to play. For me personally, some of the most challenging moments that I've had in being a husband have come when we faced major decisions and we've had different opinions on the best way forward. One of them, we had this experience when we were finishing up at seminary in America and we were deciding on whether we'd move back to Australia or look to stay in the U.S., And you may not know, but I didn't really want to come back. This was not my dream job, I'm sorry to say. We were both somewhat torn, but all in all, Allie wanted to be home, closer to family and friends, and though she would have willingly stayed if I had said, I think this is where God is calling us, I knew that unless the Lord laid it on both our hearts to stay, it was my task to sacrificially serve her and to decide together to move back. And in the kindness of God, it has turned out to be a great decision. And God has blessed us and given me a community to pastor and lead here at St. Oswald's that I love serving. I love you guys. I love being a part of what we're doing here and what Jesus is doing here. One of the things that I've learned in marriage is that I can do things to make it easy even joyful for Ali to sacrificially submit to lift me up. And there are things that she can do to make it easy and even joyful for me to sacrificially love and serve her to lift her up. And my job is not to try and change her. My job is to work on myself. I've heard it said, weed your own garden and water your spouses. Do you like that? That's good advice. Let them weed theirs. You weed yours and water theirs with encouragement and love. And if you're here today and you're married, but you're thinking about your marriage and you think, my marriage has none or very little beautiful mutuality, beautiful reciprocity in it, can I encourage you to do something about it? Talk to some trusted friends. Come and talk to me. Let me help you find a counselor. Whatever it takes. Because you serve the Lord in your marriage and so it matters too much to not do something about Let's move on. Children and parents, verse 20. Taking a long time just moving through that first couple of verses. Children, Paul says, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children or they may lose heart. If we feel unsettled with the first couplet, there's a lot that we can get on board with in this second one, right? Especially if you're a parent of children. Amen to that. My kids slept to almost 8am this morning because of daylight savings and I'm thinking about making daylight savings a once a week occurrence. (laughs) Of course, again, what made Paul's instructions to children so striking wasn't that they were to obey their parents but that he addressed them at all. These children who were rarely even noticed or given attention in the ancient world Paul says you're able to serve Jesus in the way you relate to your parents and there's so much we could say about that but in particular I just want to spend a couple of minutes on the other half of this pair fathers do not provoke your children or they may lose heart I find it so interesting that Paul uses parents in the verse before but fathers here And it may be just to keep the symmetry with husbands and masters, and certainly these instructions don't give mums a free pass to provoke their children. Don't hear me saying that. But I wonder whether Paul takes aim at fathers in part because he knows the way that a father's presence and investment in a family can make such a critical difference. Earlier this week, as I was putting him to bed, we just turned out the light And I'd prayed with him and sung him a song. Jasper turned over to me in his bed and he says, Dad, can you not go to work tomorrow? And he might have been just saying, I work too hard, but I think what he was saying was, I love spending time with you. And I don't share that to big note myself. I've still got plenty of growing to do as a father. But Dad's, Your kids need you to emotionally connect with them. To be present with them, to not be so distracted by everything that has consumed your day that you don't give them the attention that they crave. The word provoke here means to do things that cause a child to want to rebel. And some translations use the language, do not exasperate your children to capture that sense of being pushed to the limit to the edge it can happen when parents have unrealistic expectations of their kids or when parents try to live vicariously through their kids so that the kid has to be something particular in order to fulfill a parent's longing a friend of ours who has four children and happens to be one of the most all-star mums we know She talks about how she sees their home as a place of hospitality. We hear that and we think hospitality for outsiders coming in, but she says, no, it's a place of hospitality for my own family members who need to have space to be who they are and to be accepted for who they are. But here's another way that we can exasperate our kids too. Parents, and I'm including myself here, don't exasperate your children with screens. Andy Crouch, a brilliant cultural and sociological Christian commentator, writes in one of his books, an awful lot of children born in or after 2007, and if you're wondering, that was the year of the iPhone release, have been competing with their parents' screens for attention their whole Lives. If your kids always have to interrupt you from checking emails or social media or playing FIFA or searching for the latest bargain on Gumtree or Marketplace, something is not right. And on the flip side, because we serve the Lord Jesus in our parenting, the task is not simply to avoid provoking them, but to lead them healthily and healthfully towards greater maturity in faith. That's the great prayer, isn't it? That you pray as a mum or as a dad. Of course, there's no one-to-one connection between parental effort and whether a child will turn out to have a living, growing faith in God. You can't just put in the right inputs and the right outputs will necessarily come out. You can do all the right things. And a kid might still reject God's love, and yet there's not no relationship either. Which why the general wisdom of Proverbs holds, train children in the right way, and when old they will not stray. It's not a promise that it will never happen, it's just the general wisdom and the principle of life. That's the reason we read the scriptures with them. It's why we help them think through their choices through the lens of God's Word. I remember being a year 12 student and lots of my friends had decided to go on a cruise for schoolies. You don't know what schoolies is? A trip at the end of your HSC or international baccalaureate where you just go away and have a lot of fun as a celebration of finishing school. Going away on a cruise where you can't get off sounds like a horrible idea, doesn't it? When you think about it, and especially a bit older. But I wanted to go because I hated the idea of being left out. And so I asked my parents. And I would have so much preferred them to have just said no, because then I could have been angry with them and blamed them for not letting me do what I wanted. But instead they said, do you think that going on the cruise will help you to follow Jesus? Oof. Oof. I need the answer to that question, and as hard as it was to have to own it, them helping me think it through helped me grow as a Christian. In a few minutes, we're going to watch a a video um, from Andrew, the senior minister at CCW, and his wife Katrina on some of the things that they've learnt about their own journey of parenting. They're a little further down the track than me. And they speak about what they've learned about raising kids in the Lord. But before we get there, that's going to be the last thing we do, we're going to just look very briefly at this third relationship, slaves and masters. See, the bulk of the verses in this section are actually devoted to the relationship between slaves and masters. And scholars think that that's probably because the question of slave-master relations in the church was a particular sore spot in Colossae. And the reason they think that is because one of the people who took this letter to the church, we find out in chapter 4, was the slave Onesimus, who had run away from his master Philemon. And we happen to know something about Onesimus and Philemon because Paul wrote a letter to Philemon, and it's in our New Testament, and it's called Philemon. And in that letter, Paul encourages Philemon, a Christian master who's in Colossae, to welcome Onesimus, his runaway slave who had disobeyed him, back. But not just to welcome him back in an ordinary way and say, well, come on in and be a slave again. No, Paul says to Philemon in verse 16 of that letter, no longer treat him as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. And you can imagine that Onesimus might have been something of a hero, in the slave community in Colossae. And so Paul needs to remind slaves to obey their earthly masters in everything, not only when their masters are watching, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. And you can imagine that slave masters in Colossae, especially in the church, were wondering what the This deal with Onesimus and Philemon meant for their livelihood because, in the ancient world, slaves were a vital part of the economy for families to sustain themselves, especially in domestic and agricultural labor. And because that ancient version of slavery doesn't exist in our day, especially in a context like Australia. It's really tempting for us to read this passage and want to just apply it to a different context, like to apply it to, say, the context of work, employers and employees in workplace relations. And I think there is some grounds for that, with appropriate appropriate caveats that slavery in the ancient world and modern workplaces are very different. I've preached messages like that before, and if we teach on faith and work again at some point, I'll probably use this passage to teach on it again And the basic point to be made there is that if a slave can be told that they serve the Lord Christ in the work that they have no freedom to choose, then how much more do those of us who work as employees have dignity in the work that we do to be able to serve the Lord Christ there too? whether that's menial work or the most technically proficient, whether that's the tasks of a parent at home with the kids or the employee who works for a multinational company. That's the way that that point is to be made, but that's not the point I want to make today. Today I just want to point out how this pattern of slaves and masters follows what we've been seeing so far, that both slaves and masters live under the lordship of Christ. And that means they are both responsible to Christ for how they live and how they serve. In fact, that's clearer in these verses than anywhere else, because every time you see the word master written in these verses, that's the same Greek word as the word Lord. And so Paul is saying, serve your earthly Lord, small l, your master, because you serve the Lord, capital L, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to masters, chapter 4, verse 1, "'Treat your slaves justly and fairly,' a radical command in the ancient world. Why? Because your slaves are dearly loved by God, loved and dignified so much that they can receive the inheritance of eternal life just as much as you can. And because you also have a master, a lord, just as you might be a small-m master or small-l lord, and that master is above you in heaven.'" And so this pattern of using our domestic relationships, using the granular context in which we live our days as context to serve Jesus is pushed through even here. Sometimes people criticise the Bible for not being more progressive on the atrocity of ancient slavery, which for what it's worth wasn't the same as race-based 17th and 18th century slavery, but even still it was not a good system. Yet Paul's not condoning slavery, nor is he simply accepting the status quo. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her superb book, Confronting Christianity, which we had on our uh, Connect desk as a book to give away to people who are um, coming along to church here for the first time. I'm not sure if there's any copies of that one left, but it's a really great book. She says this about Colossians chapter 3. She says, passages like this one argue against slavery by cutting the legs out from under it. Jesus inhabited the slave role. Paul calls himself a slave of Christ. He loves a runaway slave as his very heart, that's Anesimus, and insists that slave and free are equal in Christ. With no room for superiority, exploitation or coercion, but rather brotherhood and shared identity, the New Testament created a tectonic tension that would ultimately erupt in the abolition of slavery. Slaves and masters, whatever their status or power or privilege, both serve the Lord Christ and are equal in Him. And Jesus must be Lord in these relationships too, just as